a veterinarian uh, shares this story. I had been called to examine a 10-year-old Irish wolfhound named Belker. Nice name, Belker. The dog's owners, Ron, his wife Lisa, and their boy, Shane, were all very attached to Belker. And they were hoping for a miracle. I examined Belker and found he was dying of cancer. I told the family there were no miracles for Belker and offered to perform the euthanasia procedure for the old dog in their home. As we made arrangements, Ron and Lisa told me they thought it would be good for their four-year-old son, Shane, to observe the procedure. They felt Shane might learn something from the experience. The next day, I felt the familiar catch in my throat as Belker's family surrounded him. Shane seemed so calm, petting the old dog for the last time. And I wondered if Shane understood what was going on. Within a few minutes, Belker slipped peacefully away. The little boy seemed to accept Belker's death without any difficulty or confusion. We sat together for a while after Belker's death, wondering aloud about how, about the, the sad fact that animal lives are shorter than human lives. Shane, who had been quietly listening, piped up and said, I know why. Startled, we all turned to him and and he explained. People are born so that they can learn how to love everybody. But dogs already know how to do that. So they don't have to stay as long. I don't know if that is a a true story or not. I have no idea. But if the truth be told, we could probably learn a few things about love from our pets who seem to love us no matter what. We are continuing in our study of the book of Revelation. And last week we finished with the greeting and the introduction found in chapter 1 where we learned the Apostle John, the last surviving apostle, was the human author. He's the one who put 
pen to paper. And if you recall, John, who was likely in his 90s, found himself on Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony situated on a barren volcanic island surrounded by shark-infested waters. John was exiled there by the Roman authorities, subjected to forced labor in the marble mines for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. John was doing what God wanted him to do. John was in the center of God's will, and John was suffering for it. The Roman authorities wanted to shut John up. They wanted to stop his ministry, so they put him on a rock surrounded by water. But we know that didn't work out too well. For God had a different purpose, and this morning, you and I are reading the product of Patmos. It's amazing. In the first chapter, we learned the book of Revelation is actually a letter. A very long letter. A letter written to seven real churches in Asia Minor. These churches faced intense persecution by the Roman authorities. Pressured to compromise their faith. And these churches needed encouragement to endure and persevere. They needed to be challenged to live godly lives in an ungodly world. And these churches needed hope for the future. They needed to know that in spite of their present reality, God was still on the throne. Jesus will return just as He promised. He will be victorious. Good will triumph over evil. And in the end, it will all be worth it for those who overcome by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Last week, we also got our first taste of apocalyptic writing. A style that uses signs and numbers, colors, and vivid images to represent deeper truths and deeper meanings. We saw that Jesus revealed himself to John in a vision using Old Testament imagery, similar to the imagery that God had given to the prophet Daniel. This is how Jesus chose to reveal himself to John at that moment, using a lot of symbolism, driving home the truth that Jesus is in the midst of the church. 
He is the wise and mighty high priest of the church. And ultimately, he has the last word. Even the last word over death. Now, if you also recall from last week, John gave us an outline for the entire book. In chapter 1, verse 19, John was given instruction by Jesus, and he said to John, Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. This is the outline of the book. Chapter 1 pertained to the things which John had just seen. The things John had already experienced. That was the first section. The second section of the outline pertains to the things which are. In other words, these are the things that are present at the time of John's writing. The current events that include messages from Jesus to the seven churches who were active in John's day. And these messages are found in chapters 2 and 3. As I said earlier... These seven churches are seven real churches in Asia Minor. And I also believe these seven churches represent all churches throughout all times worldwide. What is said of them can be said of any church, anywhere. And if you think about it, this really isn't anything new. The Apostle Paul wrote letters that were sent to seven churches, only seven churches, but they are applicable to all churches. So for the next seven weeks, we are going to be looking at the letters to these seven churches. Okay, Letters given by the Lord and given from His perspective. Meaning, this is an inside look at how Jesus sees these churches. How Jesus sees his people. Remember, we don't go to church. We are the church. Okay? So this is an inside look at how Jesus sees his people. If you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we will begin with verse 1. Revelation 2, verse 1. And just as a side note here, since we are going to be looking at one church each week for homework... If you want to be an overachiever and you want to show off, you can read ahead to the next church so you're ready, okay? Just a little homework. Revelation 2, verse 1. Everybody there? Come on, Kimmy. Can't be hard. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Here we go. 
to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Let's stop right there. This letter is to the angel of the church. And as I mentioned last week, the Greek word here for angel simply means messenger. Messenger. And I believe this letter is written to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Now before we look at this church, let's first consider the city. Okay? A real city. And if you did not know... Ephesus was the city where John lived before he was exiled to Patmos. Did you know that? Okay. Ephesus was a a major city in the ancient world. A great port city along the Caister River that dumped into the Aegean Sea. It would be similar to Portland with harbors along the Columbia River that dumps into the Pacific Ocean. Same type of visual representation. Ephesus was the primary shipping harbor for Asia Minor. But not only that, four major trade routes went through this city, making it the commercial hub, the marketplace for Asia Minor. Ephesus was a place of commerce and wealth where goods and products were brought in and sent out and it was the gateway to the Roman provinces to the east. In John's day, Ephesus was the largest city in the western region of Asia Minor, having a population of about 300,000 residents. It was a beautiful city, with its main street lined with marble columns and statues stretching from the harbor. You got a picture back there of the main street? see columns and probably pedestals, which it might hold statues or busts of particular individuals. It's a beautiful street. Obviously, those are ruins, correct? Okay. Anyway, this main street went from the harbor all the way to the amphitheater. You got a picture of the amphitheater? Which reportedly could hold 25,000 people. So it was a beautiful city. Ephesus was world famous as the religious and cultural center of that entire region. And it was the home to the temple of Artemis. Also known as the temple of Diana. Which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. You got the slide there of that? Okay, great. It was 425 feet long. By 220 feet wide, it was supported by 127 columns columns that were 60 feet high. At that time, 
It was one of the largest marble buildings in the world. Much larger, much larger than a football field. Now within, hold off on the slide there, within the center of this temple was the statue of the goddess Diana. With a a beautiful temple and a beautiful name like Diana, surely, surely she will be a beauty. Right? You got to pull that slide up? Not so much, right? I guess beauty is in the eye of the beholder. As you can see, she is a a multi-breasted looking thing that was supposed to suckle people to give them life. She was believed to be the goddess of childbearing. And the worship of Diana was the main religion in Ephesus. So that's a snapshot of the city. Now let's consider the background of the Christian church. The church in Ephesus, is that a picture of her, Philip? Yeah, get that off of there. <laughs> yeah, take it somewhere else. <laughs> the church in Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul around 53 AD, after Priscilla and Aquila's initial efforts began uh, about 50 AD. Paul spent a couple of years there to establish a thriving church. And after Paul, then came Apollos, who was from Alexandria. Later, Paul trained up Timothy, Timothy, to become the pastor at Ephesus. And after Timothy, Tychicus. And after Tychicus, the Apostle John. John moved to Ephesus after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. This Ephesus was John's home church prior to being exiled to Patmos. That's a brief background of the church at Ephesus. And we are told in our passage that Jesus walks among it. Jesus is with the church. He loves the church. He is the head of the church. And Jesus sees the deeds and the real motives of the church. Jesus knows the true condition of the church. He knows what is really going on. And because he knows what is really going on, he can compliment, he can 
criticize and he can challenge the church as he sees fit. So let's start with the good stuff first. The compliment. Verse 2. Jesus says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Let's stop there. This sounds like a great church. It's a happening church. They are a busy church. They are a determined church. They are a hard-working church. They seem to be a church that faithfully serves. They are a sacrificing church that endures and perseveres through hardship. And they are a church that possesses sound doctrine. Strongly opposed to any false teaching. In the days of the early church, there were false teachers and those who tried to mislead the church and exploit the church for their own purposes. And the church had been warned many times by Paul and by others to be careful and to be sure they were not being misled. As a matter of fact, it was John who said in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. We have to be careful as well. We are to never assume that every spiritual word or every spiritual experience or demonstration of spiritual power is from God. We must test these things to see if they are in fact from God. We must trust in the principle that God will never contradict himself. God will not contradict his own word. And that's why it's vital that we know it. This church took these warnings to heart and chased off the evildoers and the false teachers who failed the test of sound doctrine. Some years after the book of Revelation was written, Ignatius who was the leader of the church in Antioch, wrote the church in Ephesus, and he said to them, You all live according to the truth, and no heresy has a home among you. 
Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ in truth. That's an example of just how passionate and zealous they were for doctrinal purity. In verse 3, Jesus highlights the perseverance of the Ephesians. They have endured hardships for his name and they have not grown weary. From the earliest days as a church, these Christians had put up with hostility from the authorities and from those who had worshipped other gods. And if you remember, some of this persecution was mentioned in Acts 19. When the silversmith, Demetrius, worked up the people in Ephesus into a frenzy against the Apostle Paul and his companions. If you recall, Paul's message was hurting the business of Demetrius, who had made silver shrines for who? The temple of Diana. He wanted Paul and his companions gone. To protect his prophets. So the church at Ephesus was a serving church. A hard working church. A persevering church. A church that knew their Bible. And if we drop down to verse 6. Jesus continues with his compliments. And points out they are a church who hates sin. He says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see that in verse 6? The church at Ephesus hated the sin of the Nicolaitans, and so did Jesus. The Nicolaitans are also mentioned in a later letter to the church at Pergamum. But there isn't a lot known about this group of individuals. Some Bible scholars have speculated, and it's pure speculation, that this was a strange sect in the early church who claimed to have the inside track with God and possibly taught that freedom in Christ meant you had a green light to do whatever you wanted to do without any reservation, similar to, if it feels good, do it, God won't mind. Well, God did mind. And so did this church. They hated what they did. So the church in Ephesus sounds like A great church. A church any of us would like to join. But let's go back up to verse 4. Because Jesus has something else to say about them. Verse 4. But. Ooh, that's a big word. But. I have this against you. That you have left your 
first love. We're told they left their first love. But what does that mean? What does that mean? Did they forsake their love for God? Did they leave their love for one another? I suspect that both are in mind because these two loves go together. You can't say you love God and not love His people. You can't do that. And you really can't love His people without loving Him first. John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. Strong words, aren't they? He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. And here's the crazy part. This church, this church in Ephesus, was once commended for their love. Paul said to them, I know the ladies are are in Ephesians. Paul said to them in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints. This is the same church. But it's not the same church. Paul described this church as a loving church when he wrote the letter to Ephesians around 63 AD, about 10 years after he founded the church. So what happened? They were loving at one time. Now we're being told they have left their first love. What happened? At the time of the book of Revelation was written, Most of the Ephesian Christians were now second generation, third generation believers. And though they retained their purity of doctrine and had a high level of service, they were lacking in their devotion to Christ and their love for people had faded, had faded as a result. In all their hard work and diligence and doctrine, their love faded away. They were mechanical. Serving out of duty, but not out of devotion. 
not out of love. They were an unloving church. A preacher once said, speaking about this church, their theology, their theology was as clear as ice and just as cold. That was a description of the Ephesians. Their theology was clear as ice and they were just as cold. Charles Spurgeon said, sometimes a focus on doctrinal purity will make a congregation cold, suspicious, and intolerant of diversity. In their pursuit of truth, in their efforts to root out evil, in their, ooh, in their desire to be right, in their drive to reject anyone who did not walk in lockstep with them, these Ephesian Christians had allowed a tragic flaw to infect their church. They did not love one another. Which Jesus said would be the hallmark, the hallmark for his followers. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, by this, not your doctrine, by this will all men know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Of course, as a church, we need to follow sound doctrine. And yes, we need to be service-oriented. And without a doubt, we need to endure and persevere through hardships. But that is no substitute for loving one another. What we do is vitally important. But why we do what we do is just as important. Now Jesus isn't one of those who just complains, but offers no solution. So in verse 5, he gives it. Listen to what he says in verse 5. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent 
and do the deeds you did at first. Or else, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand, which is another name for the church, out of its place. Unless you repent. According to Jesus, their first love can be restored. Jesus says to remember, to repent, and to do the actions you did at first. Or we could say, repeat the three R's. Remember, repent, repeat. That was fancy, wasn't it? Did you like that? Okay. I, I <laughs> this is great. Yes. Remember, this is a call to reflect, to go back and recall the past, to remember the way it was, the way it used to be when you when you had a loving, thriving relationship with the Lord. Jesus is saying, look back to that point when your relationship with me was loving and thriving and exciting. What was going on back then? Why were you doing what you were doing back then? Remember when you loved me? Remember when you loved me? What were you doing back then? This is something we do as married couples. When our relationships become dull and boring. I would never, I would not understand that because yeah, Trisha's not here, is she? Okay, we're we're good. Okay. (laughs) Okay. No, but this is something we do as married couples when our relationships become, become dull and boring. Do you remember the honeymoon love you once had? Do you remember the, the excitement and the wonder and the joy you had at the beginning of your marriage? Sometimes as couples, we have to remember what drew us together in the first place. What drew us together in the first place and filled us with love. Sometimes we have to remember that. Jesus says to repent. To repent is more than a feeling. It's it's more than feeling sorry for your sin. It means to recognize your condition as being wrong. Have a hard time saying that word wrong. Wrong. That's right. Means to accept you are wrong. And then to change your mind and to change your direction and to change your behavior. The church in Ephesus was told to recognize their loveless attitude. To acknowledge it as being wrong and to go in a different way. The right way. God's way. 
And lastly, Jesus said to repeat, which seems to be a call to repeat those loving actions which were once a priority in a believer's life. To correct a lack of love for God and for others, sometimes we have to go back to the beginning, back to the basics, back to the gospel. I should be loving, I should be loving towards others because Christ was loving to me. I should be forgiving of others because Christ was forgiving of me. I should be gracious to others because Christ is gracious to me. I should be merciful to others because Christ is merciful to me. I should be patient with others because Christ is patient with me. And we could go on and on and on with this. But I want to make a point. Oftentimes, the loving actions come before the loving feelings. And I think that is why Jesus said, do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds you did at first. Back to couples for a minute. Sometimes when we are having problems in our, in our marriages, where we've lost that loving feeling, you know, that's gone, boom, 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 just, just not there anymore. Sometimes we have to go back and do what we used to do when we had that loving feeling. If you came to me as your pastor, as if you came to me as a couple and said, you know what, we just we don't we don't we don't have that spark anymore. We, we're just not we're not we're not in love anymore like we used to be. My response might be, well, tell me what it was like when you were in love. What did you do? What were you doing back then? Well, we went out once a week. We, we, had, we took long walks. We had hot chocolate every night. My response might be, well, maybe you should try going out once a week and going on long walks and having hot chocolate every night. Go through the loving actions and hopefully the loving feelings will return. Does that make sense? So Jesus gave the church his solution, but he also gave them a warning. If you remain an unloving church, he would remove their lampstand, meaning they will no longer be a functioning church. A loveless church is no longer a useful church. And Christ has the right to extinguish it. A church that loses its love is in danger of losing its place. No matter how busy, 
or doctrinally sound they are. And that's what eventually happened to this church. They were extinguished. Then we come to the last verse to this church. Jesus tells this church in verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He who has an ear. That includes every one of us, doesn't it? Last time I checked, we all had ears. This message is for you and for me. In fact, it's to all the churches. If you notice, churches is plural there. Those who overcome, which is a description of true believers who follow Christ... They will enjoy the fruits and the blessing and the fellowship with God throughout eternity. Originally, the word paradise meant a garden of delight. But eventually, it came to mean the place where God lives. Where God is. That is paradise. And for those who love God, for those who love others, that's where we shall be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord God, for sharing your word with us. I'm grateful that John was on Patmos I'm thankful that we get, to, we get to view the product of Patmos. I thank you, Lord God, for your convicting words from this church at Ephesus. Once a loving church, and now the love is gone. Father, I pray that our love for you, our love for others, would never fade away. Help us, Father, to be known as a church who loves others. Who loves you. May you be honored and glorified, Father, in us. May Jesus be lifted up. Help us, Father, to be the kind of people you desire us to be. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Go back to uh, verse 6. And what does that say? You hate the deeds 
of the Nicolaitans, right? We don't know who they are. Pure speculation. There's a word there that I want to really hone in on. Did it say the church of Ephesians and Jesus hated the Nicolaitans? No. The deeds, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. That's different, isn't it? That's different. That's a big difference. In the last couple years, last couple years, I have seen more hatred. Now, think about the American church, just the American church, okay? I have seen more hatred spewed towards people. Towards people. By those who profess to be children of God. Amazing. I've seen Christians who claim to be Republicans just hate Democrats. People. People. Because of their political stance, hate them. I've seen Christians who identify as Democrats hate Republicans. People. Because they're Republicans. I've seen I've seen People who profess to be Christians just spewing venom, venom. When you watch school board meetings, it's just venom, absolute venom over, over things like a paper mask. Unbelievable. And they profess to be Christians. I just don't, it's just, just mind-boggling to me. I've seen Christians who, you know what? They just want to be right. At the expense of everything and everyone else. Just got to be right. That's it. I'm right. That's all that matters. It's mind-boggling. It's mind-boggling. I don't want to be unloving. We may not always agree, right? We may not always agree. That's a given. We're different people. you got to love me and I have to love you that's not open for debate we can't debate that 
someone asked me some time ago, I was teaching probation and parole officers in Portland. Talking about separating, you know, hating someone's behavior, but loving that person, right? How do you, how, how do, you do that? My response was, you need to raise teenagers. You'll know how to do that. That's the truth. Parents do that. <laughs> That's what we do. We may not like what they do, but we got to love them. Right? But for some reason, Christians can't do that. I don't know why that is. Yes, we need to be doctrinally sound and pure. Absolutely. We can hate the deeds. Hate the behavior. Hate the actions. But we've got to love people. As far as I know, no one has ever been led to Christ by hate. Not a single person I'm aware of. I hated them into heaven. Really. Really. Am I right? We got to love people whether we agree with them or not. You just have to. We have to be a loving church. I think I'm done. (laughs) I hope I didn't step on any toes. I was like, you know what? Maybe I should get closer here to make a beeline for the door. I wasn't sure. Uh, But, you know, I just got to speak from my heart. I want to be a loving church. Just be, I just want to love on people. We just love each other. Yes, we speak the truth. Absolutely. But we do it in love. We, do it, we always do it in love. We should be. Okay. That's where I want us to be as your pastor. A loving church. Hope the Lord's spoken to you this morning. Maybe even convicted you. I don't know. The Lord's moved you this morning to make a decision, to make a commitment. I would love to know that. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, oh, I'd love to introduce you to him. He loves you so dearly. He proved it on the cross. What more could he do? What more could he do to prove how much he loved you? What else is there? Gave himself for you. He loves you that much. And his love for us should change us. Maybe you're looking for a church to join. Love to have you. Love to have you. Or maybe there's a decision you have to make. Maybe you want to talk to somebody. I would love to chat with you as well. However the Lord moves you, however you feel led, I just pray you'd respond to him in obedience. Thank you all for being here this morning, and, uh, and uh, I, just, I just enjoy seeing all of you. Uh, let, me, uh, let me pray for our, our offering this morning, and then also for our fellowship as well. Heavenly Father, again, thank you so much for, for bringing us here. Uh, Father, we love you. We love you. And Father, help us to love you more. Help us to love one another, that you may be honored and glorified. And that we would be recognized as your disciples. 
thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord. Father, I pray for our offering this morning. And Lord God, I pray that you would bless the, the gift and the giver. And that you would help us as a church, Lord God, to use your money wisely. And the Father, for our fellowship, Father, I pray it would just be sweet. Where we truly would just love one another. Uh, Lord God, I just, I just thank you so much for that time together. Bless the food. Bless those who brought food, who prepare food. And just bless our time together. May you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.